It's August 2020. Last month, July, saw the 475th anniversary of the sinking of Henry VIII's favourite warship. Each year, a wreath is laid at Portsmouth Cathedral on the grave of an unknown sailor from the Mary Rose, in memory of the lives lost on that tragic day, the 19th of July, 1545. Nearly 500 crew members are believed to have drowned as the ship sank beneath the waves, a crew of surprisingly diverse ethnicity. Welcome to the third in a series of podcasts from the Mary Rose Museum, created while it's still closed due to the impact of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. This time, we will be addressing another worldwide issue and relating it to the crew of the Mary Rose. Recently, the Black Lives Matter campaign has brought into sharp focus the question of equality and equity right across the globe. In Tudor England, contrary to popular belief, Africans were not unusual. But who were they? What did they do? And where did they live? In 2019, Channel 4 followed the investigation of eight skeletons of the Mary Rose crew members as they were systematically analysed to uncover their origins. This resulted in a fascinating new exhibition in the museum called The Many Faces of Tudor England. One of the expert historians involved in that documentary was Dr Onyeka Nubia, lecturer at Nottingham University. And it's with Dr Nubia that we will be talking today. Dr Nubia is a leading authority on the lives of Africans in Tudor England. He has written books on the subject and can provide insights on diversity within the crew of the Mary Rose and England as a whole. Dr Nubia, great to meet you and thanks for agreeing to talk to us about all this. Hello. Yeah, good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> um, I guess the first thing we should do is to set some context as to why there would be Africans in England at that time and what they would have been doing. Okay, so I'd, what I'd like to do, Adrian, is actually explain how um, what Tudor England was, because I mean, people use these terms like Tudor England and Stuart England without actually explaining what they mean. So the name Tudor actually is a name, it's a family name. It's the name of the royal family that came from Wales in 1485, led by Henry Richmond, uh, Henry Tudor. Uh, a Welsh family, it's actually a Welsh name, not an English name at all. And they conquered the English uh, king, Richard III, at the Battle of Bosworth Field, and became the royal family. And they ruled from 1485 to 1603. The last Tudor monarch was Elizabeth I. And this family uh, or this dynasty is known as the Tudor dynasty because that's the name of the family. Taking that forward then, we've defined Tudor England. What is the situation with the ethnicity of that country at the Great. time? So, as I've just explained, the royal family were of Welsh extraction, actually, actually Welsh-French extraction, and many other ethnicities existed in Tudor society. There were Scotsmen, Irish. There was also a group of people called Egyptians who defined themselves differently from the rest of the state. They had their own laws, their own regulations, and they didn't abide by the laws of England. And they were known as Egyptians. It didn't mean that they were from Egypt, although they did claim it, but it did mean that they regarded themselves as having a separate ethnicity. And there were also people of African descent. Some of these people of African descent were people from Europe. 
They were Africans from Europe, from the Iberian Peninsula, from Spain and Portugal, from France, um, from what is now Italy, um, from what became the Holy Roman Empire. And also there were people of African descent who were first, second and third generation English born people mm -hmm. who were actually born here, it didn't come from anywhere. Sure. So th there's a, a lot of ethnic, ethnic things going on inside this society which aren't really spoken about. Um, Catherine of Aragon, as we know, the first wife of Henry VIII is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And yet she was also a direct descendant of King Edward III, King of England which is a sort of complicated relationship there. But she was the daughter of King Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. So um, there's a lot of different ethnicities inside English society. And the people of African descent were part of that ethnicity. There were also people of Jewish descent from the Iberian Peninsula, from Spain and Portugal, fleeing anti-Semitism that was very vehement and strong. Uh, inside Spain and Portugal. And from 1492, many of these people settled in England and took up prestigious positions or settled around the ports, around uh, areas of London, uh, Portsmouth, um, Southampton, etc. So that's interesting. One of the things you said there, the Jews, for example, took up prestigious positions. Yeah. Was there some, any... Some, some yeah. sure. But uh, what was the view of the population, if you like, at that time of these people of different ethnicity, let's stick, if we can, particularly with the Africans, because obviously that's what we're leading on to a little bit yeah. later with regard to the crew of the Mary Rose. Good. So, so there were lots of different views um, about people of African descent, but for us to understand that, we have to, in a sense, explain how these different people of African descent came from different regions, mm -hmm. and of course how they would be received would depend on where they came from and what they were doing here. So if we take someone like Henry Anthony Jetto, who's living in Holt, Worcestershire, in the 16th century, um, Henry Anthony Jetto uh, came here in a relatively servile position to serve Henry Bromley, a well-known aristocrat. Now, when he comes, he's referred to in a very servile way in parish records. Par parish records are the documents that were created to record people baptised, buried and married in a given parish. Now, they record Henry Anthony Jetta in a relatively servile way. Later on, he becomes very integrated within his parish. He marries a local woman called Presidia, has six children with her and one other child out of wedlock. These seven children go on to have 32 children and those 32 children go on to have about 126 grandchildren. So what I'm explaining here is, is that in Holt, Worcestershire in the 16th century, a lot of people were descended <laughs> from Henry Anthony Jetto and regarded him in the mo with the most um, extreme um, uh, respect because he was their ancestor. And they continuously referred to him as their ancestor in their parish records because by the end of his life, he became a yeoman. A yeoman is someone who owns their own land um, a yeoman is at the top of the labouring classes in terms of um, uh, position. A yeoman also can vote in general elections and a yeoman will sit um, in jury trials um, of their peers. So a yeoman was a very prestigious position. So this man of African descent had risen to a position where he was respected. So the community, which a lot of whom were actually descended from him, respected him as mm. a patriarch 
within that community because of that position that he owned, irrespective of colour or ethnicity. Sure. Okay. Now, in a converse way, um, someone like Maria Moriana, uh, uh, slightly earlier, 1470, who's recorded in, in records in, in southern England. Now, Mary Moriana, her manager, owner, employer, depending on how you see it, attempts to get her sold as a slave, mm -hmm. right, in 1470. He um, hatches what the judge calls a base plot mm -hmm. to have her sold as a slave. Why does he do that? Because she cannot speak English or French or Latin and therefore does not know necessarily what's happening to her. She's actually quite a simple person, mm -hmm. even though she's had great service towards him. So he hatches this base plot to try and have her sold. It doesn't work. Uh, and when the local community finds out that this man, this employer, is attempting to treat her as a slave, or reduce her to that position, the courts say, no, you can't do that. And the community says, no, you can't do that. And he stopped from trying to treat her in that fashion. And he's told, either you must employ her or you must let her go. And employing her means paying her a reasonable salary, letting her have three times a day off where she will be given meat, not just food, but meat, drink, mm -hmm. and other sundries, where she will be um, allowed holiday, and where she'd be respected and treated with all the terms and conditions that a servant should have. So this is, this is someone at the other end of the scale, as it were. So, so if that court decision is a reflection, if you like, of um, attitudes in general at that time, what we're saying, I presume, uh, extrapolating from that, is that slavery in the terms that we talk about these days wasn't something that existed in Tudor England at that time. No. In answer to your question, you're quite right. No. Enslavement in the way in which we have come to see it in the 18th and 19th century wasn't something that was a feature of the Tudor society where the Mary Rose was situated. Yeah. In, your, in your book, you describe this as pre-colonial, don't you? Yeah. So that it's, it, those prejudices are born from times later in history. Certainly. And therefore, at this time, if I were a yeoman walking around and yeah. seeing an African, I wouldn't be looking at his ethnicity or her ethnicity particularly in the way that we do now. Yeah, yeah. So, so you might have ideas about ethnicity, about colour, about complexion. Yes. Um, and some of those ideas may be negative, but then some of those ideas may be positive too. Yeah, and presumably those ideas are predicated on what that person is in the country doing. 100%. Yeah, thank you, Adrian. Yeah, so one, of those, one of those ideas, for example, um, if you like a preconceived idea, is that if the person was of African descent, that they would be a very good swimmer. Mm -hmm. Why? Because many of the Africans employed, especially in ports, were employed to do roles in the sea. Now, being a good swimmer is in fact a very, very important task, um, a very important skill, especially because most Englishmen were not taught how mm -hmm. to swim, even those that were seafarers. So having that meant that you were slightly otherworldly, outwardly, that you can swim, you can yes. swim into the sea, you can swim backwards and forth, you can hold your breath underwater. You must have, a, that's an otherworldly gift, otherworldly sure. skill. Uh, one of them, for example, was Jack Francis, uh, who was employed in 1547 to recover artefacts 
from the Mary Rose mm. and by Peter Corso, his employer. And they operated just outside Portsmouth, um, deep sea diving, holding their breath underwater. And Jack Francis, even though he was very young, between 18 and 20, we think, he was actually the head diver, the head of an operation with other divers in. And he operated in a supervisory role. And see, Jack Francis was a West African. He came from the island of Arguin. And in the island of Arguin, Africans were pearl divers, deep mm -hmm. sea pearl divers, and were famous for holding their breath underwater for long periods of time. So if you like, that's a prejudice or a preconceived idea that existed then, but doesn't exist now, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So having touched on the Mary Rose a little bit already then with the, someone diving on the wreck, the exhibition, The Many Faces of Tudor England, outlines eight skeletons of the crew uh, and their ethnicity, their origins, etc., uh, two of which out of those eight appear to be of Moorish descent. How would somebody of Moorish descent have become a sailor on the Mary Rose? Is there any evidence as to how that might happen? Okay, mm -hmm. and to understand that, I think we ought to understand how Africans were part of European seafaring activities. Uh, Africans formed significant presence in the Iberian Peninsula. Before 1492, in what is now Spain, people of North African, West African, um, uh, and people from what is now called Asia Minor, occupied positions of authority and royalty within the Iberian Peninsula as separate states, um, these separate Moorish states. The last of those states was Andalusia, Granada, Granada mm. in Andalusia. And um, uh, it was conquered in 1492 uh, by Ferdinand and Isabella, the father and mother of, of, Catherine, of, of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon. So he goes round in a circle. And those Moorish people, many of those Moorish people, were not expelled after 1492. Some left, but they were not expelled. Some of them continued to be employed for the Spanish and, if they went to Portugal, for the Portuguese authorities. Some of those employments involved seafaring, map making, trading, mm -hmm. uh, activities on the sea, activities also in terms of warfare. They became mercenaries, soldiers, uh, men at arms, cavalrymen, bowmen, crossbowmen, hired themselves out for various activities for the new Spanish state that they were forced to become part of. And they were also, in, often encouraged to give up their Moorish ways, their Moorish activities, their Moorish language, their religions, um, their ways of being and become Spanish. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of them refused. Some of them refused and fled, went to France, went to the Venetian states, went to Venice, uh, went to Florence, uh, went to the Holy Roman Empire and plied their trade there. Some went to what is now Holland and some came to England fleeing the persecution that they were witnessing under the Spanish Inquisition yeah. and the various activities employed by the Spanish state against Moors, Jewish people and others. And so there is a way in which those people then plying their trade would then ply their trade in England. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's one route. Also throughout the early part of the 1500s, the Spanish um, had a number of preemptory raids along the coastline of England. Some of these raids were less than successful and the crews of the ships became stranded in England. Mm -hmm. 
These were multi-ethnic crews reflecting the multi-ethnic nature of Spanish society. As they ran aground, they were often given a choice, you know, fight for England or some other kind of punishment may ensue. Many of them therefore would end up fighting for England, even though they were from Spain. And since Spain was multi-ethnic, it would therefore include people of African descent, etc. Mm -hmm. And that's also a way in which that the English Navy would become multi-ethnic. The English Navy also deliberately sought out the activities and trade of specifically skilled individuals, no matter who they were. Right. So the, the point was that they wanted people who were skilled, who had abilities, who knew about seafaring, no matter where they came from. Sure. That's why we find a lot of Spanish and Portuguese and Frenchmen involved in the English Navy, despite the fact that England was often at war with Spain, Portugal and France. Hmm. Doesn't matter. The point was that England needed skilled and proficient men-at-arms, navigators, map makers, seafarers, etc. And some of these countries had people of African descent within them. Sure. And that's how they came to be part of English society okay. and part of the English Navy. Sure. So one of the people that's particularly highlighted is the person that's known as the Archer Royal. And we've surmised that he's an Archer Royal because of a wrist guard with Catherine of Aragon's pomegranate emblem motif upon it that begs the question how far up society's ranks would Africans and, and Moors be allowed to go we know Henry VIII had a, a Moorish trumpeter don't we who was yeah. you know um, quite well paid for and I think Henry paid for his wedding clothes can you tell us a little bit about their status within society yes very good question thank you so the question is how how do we measure status mm -hmm. and what status could men and women of African descent rise? What positions could they rise to? I think that we ought to explain that England was an extraordinarily class-based society. There were a gentry who considered themselves superior by blood. There was a labouring class, and then there was a class beneath the labouring class. If you were part of the labouring class, you had a trade. You had some sort of um, uh, occupation, a stonemason or a wood, a wood craftsman. You were not a landless peasant. A landless peasant was a class beneath that class, beneath the labouring class. Mm -hmm. Now, in all of those classes, there were strict barriers, boundaries as to how you could proceed. Now, someone who is of African descent would come in at the level that their occupation demands that they would be. So if they're a stonemason, they have access to that class as a stonemason. Mm -hmm. If they were a landless labourer, they came in at that level. If they were a domestic servant, they came in at that level. If they're a visiting dignitary of an aristocrat of West African or North African heritage, they come in as an aristocrat. So they come in at the level that their class demands it, yes? If they are English-born, they are born into their class, yeah. just like everybody else. Sure. The potentiality for them to move up and down their class is sort of like everybody else too. I've not seen too much evidence of discrimination based on colour, but considerable discrimination based on class. There is some um, evidence of 
anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish discrimination, despicable, um, which was inherited, I think, in many ways from the Iberian Peninsula, from Spain and Portugal. And some of those fashions, those trends, if we can call it that, spreading from Spain and Portugal into English society. Uh, and certainly there is some strong evidence of that. And also quite systemic discrimination against lowlanders, those of Dutch um, heritage who were Protestants or dissenters, and also those of French uh, Huguenots who were dissenters in France who came to England during the wars of religion in France. And that discrimination was quite vehement. But there doesn't seem to have been a similar kind of discrimination against people of African descent who seem, for the most part, to have integrated and assimilated themselves within English society without much let or hindrance, which is very good in some ways, but also extraordinarily problematic because it means that we lose their distinctiveness and it becomes very, very, very difficult to find and trace them. And this is, I think, partly the reason why people say that, you know, there were no Africans in Tudor, sure. Tudor England because of the way in which these people appeared to have been able to negotiate their way through English society mm. in a way in which other minorities don't seem to have been able to do. Okay, so let's just return again then to the crew of the Mary Rose and, and even maybe go back to the Archer Royal again. I mentioned earlier about the Catherine of Aragon pomegranate emblem on the, on the wrist guard. Are there any other objects that are there that denote what kind of status a person might have? Okay, can we go back to the pomegranate? Do, do you mind? Yeah, no, let's, just go, wanted to, to, let's go back to the pomegranate. <laughs> yeah, it's good. important. It is, yeah. So um, the wrist guard is the item worn by archers which protects their forearm um, when pulling the bow. Uh, wrist guards have a particular notation in terms of status and archers have a particular status within any kind of military campaign. Uh, this, this archer um, uh, that was employed in royal service had a wrist guard that had a pomegranate on it. Now, this may seem rather innocuous um, because we're in the 21st century, you know, so what is a pomegranate? But we have to think ourselves back to the 16th century. The pomegranate was a fruit stroke vegetable, people can't make up their mind which it is, <laughs> that is strongly associated with the Iberian Peninsula. It's mm -hmm. not known in England at this time. So this fruit stroke vegetable has a ethnic origin that is not only um, Spanish, Iberian, but actually Moorish, mm -hmm. uh, strongly associated with Moorish traditions. And so when Spain in 1492 conquered Granada and incorporated Granada and Andalusia, they often incorporated Moorish traditions and claimed them as their own. Mm -hmm. One of them was the pomegranate. The pomegranate became a sort of Spanish symbol, um, but it always retained its Moorish ethnic roots. And so it's really interesting that we see the pomegranate displayed here. But that wasn't the question that you asked, was it? No, it was more about how that establishes a, a, or are there other objects that yeah. establish some status to an individual. Yeah. So I think there's a, a pomander with some uh, silk threads that um, yeah. was thought to prove a certain status as yeah. well. So clothing um, in the 16th century is not like now 
um, when you can go to the supermarket and buy whatever you can afford. Um, and if you have the money, you buy. You want to buy silk? Okay. You want to buy satin? You buy satin. What colour do you want? Purple, red, blue, yellow, green, yellow. It's, it's, it's all your own personal preference. And your decision making is only determined by your capacity to be able to afford it. That is not the same as 16th century English society. In 16th century English society, you are not permitted to wear certain clothing if you're not of that status by law. Silk was one of those items. Um, anything made of silk would have been considered as reserved for the upper classes. Mm -hmm. Why? Because silk was not well known in Europe. Silk was woven in places outside of Europe, for example, um, in Asia Minor or China. So if you could get hold of silk, you must be of a higher status. And silk was reserved for people of the higher status. So the fact that this archer in royal service has any silk on him at all shows that he is connected to either um, uh, someone of a higher status and he wears the livery that is according or he himself is of that status. So that brings us quite neatly on to one of the questions that we've asked all the contributors that we've spoken to, Onyeka, is um, about objects in the museum. Um, in your time there, were you able to look around and, and sort of did you see something you might be able to describe as your favourite object or one that s speaks to you because of its, what it tells you about Tudor society? I love the leather shoes. Um, uh, the, mm -hmm. those leather shoes because they seem actually quite comfortable <laughs> <laughs> and when we think of Tudor clothing we think of them being very uncomfortable but actually when we look at those leather shoes they seem really soft like almost like moccasins mm. um, very soft and, um, and you could imagine especially on board a ship a flat soled shoe being incredibly useful a flat soled shoe with a, with a, with a relatively thin um, uh, sole actually very useful so you can see how they're very practical very very efficient for what they're actually being used for I also like the combs the, um, the knit combs yeah the, yeah. Yeah, the knit combs because again it showed the, the humanness yeah. and that this ship was home to these sailors however long they were on board ship and mm. as such had to have the basic amenities that you would be required to have on board or inside your own home uh, and I find that absolutely fascinating. The idea that all these men would be crammed in this space, men and boys, crammed in this space for such a short, even if it's for a short space of time, and it for them would be home. Mm. So those are the two items that, um, yeah. that, that really uh, struck me. And of course, I was incredibly fascinated by the cannons and the intricacies of the way in which um, some of the larger cannons were marked and designed mm. uh, and fashioned. And in a way, the Mary Rose is at a pivotal moment um, in the development of the English Navy. We have a situation in the Battle of the Solent where there is, to a certain degree, an experiment taking place as to what direction the English Navy should move into. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, in most of Europe, certainly Spain, Portugal and somewhat France, you have these galleys. Uh, these galleys are effectively transporters of soldiers from one destination to another with the belief that all the sea or the rivers are are transportation stations that's all they're for mm -hmm. it is not yet 
an understanding, or haven't yet got that understanding, how the seas themselves can be a new method of warfare. Mm -hmm. And how one needs to develop shipbuilding so that it matches this new method of warfare. Now, the Carrick, um, uh, the Mary Rose is a Carrick. It isn't a galley. It isn't a galleon. It isn't quite the Golden Hind or any of those ships mm -hmm. that can travel all the way around the world and back again. It's not one of those either, but it's not a galley. It, it's sort of something that's in between, that's carrying large numbers of soldiers and seamen, almost 400 mm -hmm. are on board. But also it has the capacity, or it should have the capacity to traverse the seas. Now, the reason why the Mary Rose sinks is because in its development, there is a mismatch between what, the, what it was originally created to do, which was to be a relatively, a relatively fast seaborne vessel going between destinations and ports and being able to traverse the seas and transport people. When in the Battle of the Solent, its, its port doors are opened, as it's trying to turn and as it's trying to fire its guns. And then, as we now believe, it's sunk as a result of water coming in uh, to the ship. This isn't where the problem began. The problem began in changing the ship from its original design that couldn't carry out the function of an ordinary carrick. Yes, yeah, so in the historians, uh, the museum talk about it being top-heavy yeah. after the refit. It, yes. In 1536, I think it was, wasn't it? Sometime right. around then. Yeah. And there were too many heavy guns on the top decks. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. so you know, mm -hmm. when it became the flagship, bigger was thought to be better on the seas. Mm -hmm. Oh, if the ship's bigger, that, sure, that must mean it's better. The failure of the Mary Rose at the Battle of the Soda, and I am describing it as such, the failure of it was extraordinarily important and good for the English Navy mm -hmm. because it demonstrated that bigger isn't better. It showed that the seaworthiness of the ship is more important than the size of the ship. Mm -hmm. The loss and the defeat of the Mary Rose is an extremely good thing for the English Navy. Well, yes, and a good thing for history as well, because without that microcosm of Tudor life, we, we wouldn't know as much as we did, and we wouldn't be able to have analysed eight skeletons and find out so much. Onyeka, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the experience as much as I have. It's brilliant. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you. We hope you found that as interesting and as topical as I did. I mentioned at the start that Onyeka has written books on the subject. There are in fact two, Blackamoors, Africans in Tudor England, and England's Other Countrymen, and they're both really worth a read, especially if you're interested in learning more about diversity in Tudor England. And of course, when the museum reopens, you can see the Many Faces of Tudor England exhibition and find out more about the crew, the science behind the amazing findings about their origins, and see for yourselves some of the objects we referred to today. And the good news is that the museum is going to reopen on the 24th of August. You can buy tickets by visiting the Portsmouth Historic Dockyard website. Just follow the link from our own website. And on our website, 
You can also find a link to make donations. And as you can imagine, all donations are very gratefully received. I think that's about it. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and hopefully we'll be doing another one soon.